The In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Please like the podcast and subscribe to this channel. Thank you. Have you experienced several failed relationships or been through a divorce? How can you avoid making the same mistakes again? How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes is out now. Hi, my name is Nigel Beckles. My new book is packed with practical and common sense strategies that you can use to make better relationship choices. Now you can discover the dangerous myths about love. If your relationship expectations are realistic, why you could be falling in love for all the wrong reasons. How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes. It's a book that could change your life. Available from www.relationshipmistakesbook.com and amazon.co.uk. Kindle version also available. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest for this episode is an American author, relationship counsellor and coach who specialises in choice theory, Kim Oliver. Hi Kim, welcome to my podcast series. How are you? Doing great, Nigel. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. You're based in America. Whereabouts are you? I'm in Chicago. And what's it like there? Well, right now, it's interesting because, you know, we have the coronavirus keeping things somewhat shut down. And we have a lot of Black Lives Matter protesting. And there's been some violence in Chicago quite recently that's caused President Trump to send some federal troops. So it's a little uncertain in Chicago. I think that's the Mm. word that I would use. Yeah, I do keep track of what's happening in America. And I, I had read that Mr. Trump had sent in troops to Chicago. I think he's sending some troops to other areas as well, if I'm correct. He has. And there's a, it's caused a big political uproar because he sent federal troops with that invitation and people in charge where he sent them are asking for him to go, that they don't need him. And it seems that having the presence of federal troops doing the kinds of things that they're doing may be increasing the violence. So mm-hmm. it, it becomes a political hot button because there's people who think that the police need to be there to gain control. And the other people think we need to listen to people and understand what their gripes are so that we can figure out the appropriate action. So it depends on which side you're on. Well, Kim, you're recognized worldwide as an expert in choice theory. What exactly is choice theory? Well, choice theory has evolved over the years. It was posited by psychiatrist Dr. William Glasser, who was using therapy called reality therapy. And he was looking for a theory that explained why reality therapy worked. And he found a theory called control theory that was developed by William Powers. And control theory is an engineering theory about perception. And when Glasser discovered Powers theory, he understood why reality therapy worked. So he started to work with Powers theory and he made some additions, namely the five basic human needs as well as the concept of total behavior, meaning that when we behave, we have three parts to our behavior all the time happening simultaneously. And so when he did that, he decided his his theory should be named choice theory instead of control theory. And he got Powers permission to change the name because he had added so many things to it. And when people heard control theory, they got the wrong idea. They thought that control meant... Um, you were going to control other people. And choice theory is really just the opposite. It's about, we all have choices, no matter our circumstances, we have choices. And it's the, uh, the choices that we choose that actually direct our life. 
So choice theory started as an explanation of human behavior. It explained why people did the things that they did. It was very useful for those who were practicing reality therapy. And then Dr. Glasser was advising all of us who used reality therapy to start teaching choice theory to our clients. So it became less of an explanation of human behavior and more a way of helping people help themselves. By teaching them the theory, they could make better choices and improve their life. And most recently, um, right before Dr. Glasser passed away, his most recent work was about relationships. And he created lists of seven connecting relationship habits and seven disconnecting relationship habits. Of course, there's more than seven, but those seven, if you can get a, hab- uh, get a handle on decreasing the use of the destructive ones, the disconnecting ones, and increase the connecting ones, then you can actually say you're living your life in a choice theory way. So it kind of morphed from an explanation of human behavior to a self-help psychology to a way of living your life. So in the theory, what are some of the healthy connections? or healthy behavior connections, and what are the destructive ones? I'll start with the destructive ones because they're much easier to understand, and probably we've all used them in some form or another. And the, the reason we use them, and this is one of the proponents of, or one of the conditions of choice theory, is that all humans have pictures in their heads of how they want things to be. And in our heads, everything's perfect. But when we come out into the real world, we realize things aren't perfect. Our partners aren't perfect. Our jobs aren't perfect. Their life just isn't matching the pictures that we have in our head. So then we start to work on the people and things in our life to try to get those things to match what's in our head. The problem is when you start working on people, they have their own ideas about what their world looks like, and it doesn't include you trying to work on them. So That's what creates a lot of the drama and a lot of the problems in relationships is that we're trying to work on each other and fix each other when the other person doesn't think they're broken. And so it causes strain in the relationship. So some of the behaviors we use to make that happen, um, we might complain, blame, criticize, nag, threaten, punish, And we can even bribe people to do what we want them to do. Honey, if you do this, I'll do that. (laughs) And even though you may want the bribe, you may engage in that behavior, but there's this, this resentment of being controlled. Why can't you just get the prize without having to perform for it? So that is a disconnecting behavior. So we like to replace those as best we can. And it, it sounds easy. It's not easy, but we try to replace those with listening, And when I say listening, I'm talking about listening for understanding. Supporting is about doing it when things are difficult as well as when it's easy. So it's easy to support people when they're doing what you want them to do. It's not so easy to support them when they get what they want and it makes your life a little more difficult. And then there's encouraging, which is really believing in someone and trying to help them take the steps that they want to take on their own. So it differs from nagging. Nagging, you're trying to get them to do what you want them to do and encouraging you're trying to help them do what they want to do. It's a big difference. And then there's trusting. And trusting to me is a little complicated because people think trusting means blind trust. And we're pretty skeptical about that blind trust in people. I think that people generally trust, but they trust the wrong thing. People trust the people in their lives to be the people that they want them to be instead of the people that they actually are. And I think based on choice theory, 
if we can learn what I call the unconditional trust challenge, I've created this challenge. It came from something that happened in my life. And my unconditional trust challenge for myself is to always trust every single person to do one thing. And if I trust them to do this one thing, I'm never disappointed and I'm always able to adjust myself. So the one thing I trust everybody to do, and choice theory tells you this is what they're going to do anyway, every person at any moment in time is going to make the best choice they have available to them based on the information they have to get what they want in that moment. And so it's not earth shattering. It's just common sense. But if everyone is doing their best to get what they want, and I happen to care about them, why would I be mad about that? It might cause a problem because I wanted something different. I wanted you to do something with me maybe or for me and you chose something different. But if I know that that's what you're going to do, what's most important to you at that moment, then I need to adjust and say, okay, you took care of what you needed. Now I have to figure out how I'm going to get what I need. And then I take responsibility for what I want instead of pointing a finger at someone else and saying, you should be responsible for meeting my needs for me. So that's trust. Respect is another thing. And we like to use the golden rule that we were all taught. Most, most religions have some version of the golden rule where you're supposed to treat others the way you want to be treated. And that works great if the other person wants to be treated the same way you do. But that's not reality. Most people view respect as something different. In the United States, if I go to the southern part of the United States, or if I'm in a military environment, I get called ma'am a lot. Well, to me, ma'am is not respectful. Ma'am makes me feel old. So <laughs> someone is trying to respect me and I'm feeling disrespected. So I like to engage Tony Alessandro's platinum rule. He created this platinum rule that says, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. So you have to engage listening to find out what respect looks like to the other person and then give them what they need to feel respected, not what you might want in a similar situation. Of course, if it's just a passing thing, a server in a restaurant or something like that, they're not going to ask. They're still going to call me ma'am and I'm not going to get upset about it. But if this is someone that you're in relationship with, it's worth investing the time to find out what feels respectful to the other person. And then there's accepting, which I think is really the crux of choice theory. In fact, we'll adapt sometimes uh, the serenity prayer and we'll say it like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that person is me. And so choice theory does a lot of accepting of other people and a lot of looking in the mirror and looking inside to figure out if everything stays the same out there, if other people in my life continue to do what they do because it's meeting their needs, what do I need to do to be able to adjust myself? And it might be that you need to end that relationship. That could be what it is. And it might be that you decide to distance yourself from that relationship. It could be that you enable the behavior. It could be that you set some boundaries. But whatever it is, you need to be responsible for your part and stop looking to the other person to change. You just accept people for who they are and where they are. And then you decide your, your response to that instead of reacting to them. You're responding. And then the last thing is negotiating differences. And that's in any relationship, you're not going to always 100% want the same things. So you need to learn how to negotiate. And the difference in negotiating between compromising and negotiating 
is that in compromise, everybody gives something up. In negotiating, you both feel like you win and you don't stop negotiating until you have a solution where you both feel like you've won and your relationship has won because it's gotten stronger for going through that process. So Kim, how did you become interested in the work that you do? Well, I think the work became interested in me before I became interested in the work. So I was working out of college. I worked for a community mental health residential program. It was during the time in this country of deinstitutionalization of schizophrenics. So I was, I was in like a resident counselor working with people who were just coming out of the hospital after having been there for, for many years, mostly their entire adult lives. And I did that for about five years and I was looking for another job. I had a conflict with my supervisor and, you know, I'm, I'm one of those high freedom people and he didn't see things my way. And I thought, well, I probably need to look for some other work. And I had three offers of work. One was at a job core, one was at a drug and alcohol place, and the other was for a foster care agency. And I chose the foster care agency because they were going to train me in reality therapy. And I thought that that would be a good tool for my toolbox. So I went to the foster care agency. I ended up staying 17 years. I loved the work. I know we had talked a little off the show about kids who have been abused as children. And that was who I worked with were abused kids, mostly sexually abused kids. And I loved the work. A lot of people said, how do you do that? But I I just focused on the help that we were able to provide those kids and not the horrors that they had survived and lived through. And I left there mainly because I discovered in my work at that foster care agency, I had risen to the position of uh, director of training and development. And I just loved the work. I love teaching adults and I really was passionate about teaching choice theory. And so I did that. I worked for the William Glasser Institute as a trainer on the side. And then it became time. uh, My husband died in 99 and I raised, finished raising my two kids. They were out of the house. We lived in a rural part of Pennsylvania and I decided I needed more culture. So I moved myself to Chicago and started my own coaching business. And that's Um, what I do now. And I've never looked back. I love being my own boss. I love having my own business. And the work is just incredible. So do you still counsel people? I do. uh, But I mostly work as a coach instead of a counselor. And what I discovered was when you use reality therapy, and choice theory, you're really more of a coach than a counselor anyway, because one of the things we don't do is we don't go back into the past and try to analyze what's, what's contributing to who you are today. We recognize the past. We know that the past had a lot to do with who you are today, but it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with what you need to do today and into the future. So we don't spend a lot of time on that. That doesn't mean there's not value in it if that's something that you want to understand. But I mostly do coaching. I do it by phone, which works out, or by computer. It works out great because I'm on the road a lot doing speaking engagements. Before coronavirus, that's what I was doing a lot. (laughs) So the speaking engagements, what type of events were you speaking at? Well, a lot of my speaking engagements were booked by choice theory people around the world. I go to places where they invite me and I talk about different topics that I may have written about, or I do some choice theory training while I'm there. 
So, Kim, you're the author of several books. Why were you inspired to become involved with writing books and publishing? Well, I'll tell you how it happened the first time. I was doing a presentation with my friend Sylvester Baugh. We were doing a presentation on diversity at a choice theory conference, and we had quite a bit of people there. And after the end of our presentation, this woman came up to me. Her name is Marcella Finnerty, and she's from Ireland. And she asked me, how we developed our workshop, because it seemed to be very effective in getting at implicit bias and that she'd never seen it done that way. And she wanted to know what references we used and what books we read. And I had to tell her that there might be books like that, but we haven't read those books. We just developed our workshop based on what we know of human behavior and choice theory and the challenges of diversity. And so I looked at Sylvester in that moment and I said, we should write a book about that. And he said, you're right, we should. And we did. And uh, that's how the first book came to be. But what was really interesting to me was I've kept a scrapbook since I was a little kid. And I was going back through my oldest scrapbook and I noticed a letter. I had kept a copy of it that I had written in fourth grade. And it was to this company asking them how to become an author. And I didn't even remember that letter. I had no idea that I had any interest in doing that. Um, It completely left my consciousness, but it was very validating to see that. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I've had this desire really since I was about nine years old. So what is the first book called and what is it about? Well, I'll tell you, I, I had a working title called Diversity from the Inside Out. And I wished I had kept that title, but I let my marketer talk me into changing it to um, leveraging diversity at work because he thought that there was no business people that were going to want to buy a book called Diversity from the Inside Out. So I did make that shift. And um, the book is about diversity and it's about my relationship with Sylvester. And we have become what we consider ourselves best friends. And that shouldn't have happened looking at us from the outside, right? He's a black man. I'm a white female. He lived in Chicago. I lived in the country. He was single. I was widowed. I was raising teenage boys. He was raising uh, younger girls. And we really had nothing in common based on the outside looking in. But our paths crossed in the world of choice theory. We were taking a training together at the same time. We were close to the same age, so we kind of gravitated towards each other. And we discovered all these things that we had in common that we never would have known if we would have let those outside things interfere with our getting to know each other. We both worked for foster care agencies. We were both directors of training. I mean, just that in and of itself was pretty crazy. And then we had some spiritual beliefs that aligned and we had some family things that were similar and we just really hit it off and became really close, mainly on the base of our choice theory connection. Because when you're a choice theorist, you think differently than the vast amount of people in the world. And so it can be very isolating if you don't have other people who share those beliefs. And so we are still friends today and we met in the 90s. So it's, it's been a while. So when was the first book published? 2006. And what other books have you written? So after that, I wanted to write a book about relationships, Nigel, just like you did. (laughs) And I, I wanted to write a book about relationships because I felt like we had choice theory people, we had a way of explaining relationships and how 
they would progress in a way that wasn't pointing fingers at any one person. It was just about the nature of relationships and human nature, um, how relationships tended to go awry. So I thought it was important to write that book so people would understand and be able to build better relationships because our relationship with our significant other or significant others, it depends on, you know, whether you're in a monogamous or an open relationship, but it is really important and foundational to your mental health and how you move through the world. When your relationship is functioning well, then most everything else feels like it's falling into place and what isn't, you know, you can handle. But when your relationship is challenging in your life, then it tends to have the rest of your life kind of running amok, if you will. So I wanted to do research. I didn't want it just to be my my humble opinion. I wanted to do some research. So I decided I was going to interview 100 happy couples. And at first, it was kind of challenging to decide how do you define happy couple. But I decided to, these were my parameters. You had to be together at least 10 years because everybody looks good in the beginning, right? So you had to be together at least 10 years. You didn't have to be married, but you had to be together 10 years. And when interviewed apart, you had to both say that you were happy in the relationship. That was it. Those were my two criteria. And I speak a lot. So everywhere I was, I would invite people in the audience. If you are this happy couple, if you know of a happy couple, let me know. I'd like you to take my survey. So I thought it would take about six months to find 100 happy couples. I'm really sad to say that it took me two years. And that was what really propelled me to write the book because I I thought it was bad, but I didn't realize just how bad it was. And it, it wasn't like everybody was miserable. It's they were settling for a mediocre humdrum kind of relationship. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy, but it could be worse. And if I go out and try something else, there's no guarantee that'll be any better. You know, so people were just kind of resigned to the relationship that they had. And I knew it could be better than that. So I wrote, that was why I wrote that book. Then my next book was called Choosing Me Now. And it was taking the focus off of relationships and doing the self-growth and development work that we really need to do for ourselves, maybe to be better in a relationship or maybe just to be good alone. And it came about because people were asking me, are you taking care of yourself? Are you, are you okay? And, and I look in the mirror and I'd be like, Why, what are people seeing in me that I'm not seeing? And by the way, what does taking care of yourself really mean? Like I'm independent. I live in my own house. Of course, I'm taking care of myself. I'm not on the street. You know, I just couldn't figure it out. So like you, I did some research and I looked for books that talked about self-care. And what I found was kind of a, a dearth of information. There were things about get enough sleep, eat healthy, exercise, and maybe there was an occasional set some relationship boundaries. But there wasn't a lot of uh, more in-depth work that I was looking for. So I went away. I like to go away. I get the opportunity most years to go away to Cabo with a friend of mine. She has a timeshare and she, I, I get to have my own timeshare and go and be there with her. And it's really nice because it's by the ocean and I write my books there. I usually bang out a first draft in, in a week while I'm there. And then I spend the rest of the year, you know, making it what it turns out to be as a published work. So when I was in Cabo, I realized, you know, Kim, you're trying to write this book on self-care. You really don't know what 
what it means. What do you know? And I know choice theory. So I married the two of them. And I looked at what are those five basic human needs and how do you form a relationship with another person is that you become a need satisfying person in their life. So the question I posed myself and how I wrote my book was the answer to how can you become a need satisfying person to yourself? And so that's what Choosing Me Now is about. I did what I was telling other people to do. So I practiced it and did it myself. And now people aren't asking me anymore. Are you taking care of yourself? I think I just feel so much better. And of course, if you love yourself, you're going to take care of yourself. You are going to exercise and you are going to eat healthier and you are going to do those things because you actually value yourself. Before, I don't think I understood that concept. So it was really a, a it was more... It was kind of self-help for me. And in the process of helping myself, I thought maybe it would help others. So do you plan on writing any more books? I never plan on it, but of course I'm working on some. I've wanted to have my own thing. I've been teaching William Glasser's work for most of my adult life. And I wanted to create something that I could call mine. A little like Glasser did with choice theory. He took the base of power's perceptual control theory and he developed choice theory. I want to use William Glasser's choice theory and develop my thing that I'm calling mental freedom. And I think mental freedom is something a lot of people can get behind as something that they want, more mental freedom. So I'm doing my pilot project right now with a group of people in mental freedom group coaching. And so far it's going really well. I used mental freedom this summer while I was working with my coaching clients and people got better faster and really felt that the learning stayed with them longer. And so I think I'm onto something and I'm probably going to simultaneously be writing a book about that. And I also have a book in the works that probably will be published first and it's about coaching. Since I have a coaching school and I teach other people to become coaches and my coaching program is a board certified uh, coaching school. So I want to write a book about that so people can have it as kind of reference material. And I'm actually hoping that some universities might start teaching, offering coaching programs in their university and maybe use my book as their textbook. Those are my next projects. So Kim, how can people contact you? Well, people can write to me at Kim at therelationshipcenter.biz. That's B as in boy, I as in India, Z as in zebra. And I want to point out, since you have an international audience, that center is spelled the American way. It's C-E-N-T-E-R, therelationshipcenter.biz. Kim, that has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nigel. Please like the podcast and subscribe to this channel. Thank you. Award-winning author Pamela R. Haynes. Her latest book, Loving the Brothers, is available from Amazon and all good bookstores now. Nominated in the Best Writer category by the BLAC Awards for 2020. Loving the Brothers by author Pamela R. Haynes. Order your copy of a fantastic book now. Looking for Love is a documentary that explores black relationships in the UK, seeking answers to difficult questions, transforming the way we think about love and relationships. You know, 50% of couples who marry this year will get divorced. Looking for Love from the award-winning director Menelik Shabazz is finally available on DVD. If I had been to a counsellor or been to a therapist, I would have dealt with a lot of those issues 
a lot quicker. Get yours today from lookingforlovefilm.com. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe. Please like the podcast and subscribe to this channel. Thank you. Please like the podcast and subscribe to this channel. Thank you.